following program is produced by the Align in the Sound team. If you like what you hear, please stick around at the end of the show. To find out more, contact us and contribute towards a positive future. You're listening to Scotty Foster and Zena Richardson this morning on 98.3 FM in Canberra. Our guest this morning has a lovely definition of resilience. It's the capacity of a community or society to adapt to, recover and grow from the threats and challenges faced and create a better future where citizens can thrive. Furthermore, a resilient community or society will do so without harm to other communities or societies or the sustainability of the planet. Now, wouldn't that be a lovely concept? So this week, it's our pleasure to welcome back in studio live with us, Dr. Stephen Mugford, who will be discussing the National Resilience Project, an accompanying report established by the Institute for Integrated Economic Research and Global Access Partners, and why trust and social cohesion are vital foundations for resilience. Stephen is a sociologist, a public policy specialist and facilitator who taught at the ANU from 1974 to 1996 and he has over 40 years experience as an educator, researcher, facilitator and change management consultant for government, military, private sector and non-government organisations. He has been both an advisor to senior leaders over the years and an active player in major change programs. All of that preceded by a long successful academic career, specialising in sociology, social psychology, and earning a major reputation as a scholarly researcher in criminology and drug policy. So I'd like to welcome you back to the show, Stephen. Thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you, Zena. Good morning. Good morning, Scotty. Nice to be back. So, yeah, it's wonderful. I think there's quite a few people that were looking forward to having you back on the show. We got some lovely feedback when we had you here last year. Great. Yeah, it feels Great. funny saying last year. <laughs> yeah, it does, doesn't it? But anywhere and there, the millennium is rocketing away. It is, and, <laughs> and I think we're all quite happy 2020 is gone, but it did. there are some positive things to going through challenges, which we'll talk about later, and one Absolutely. of them is developing resilience. Yeah. And if 2020 did nothing else, it certainly helped us develop resilience and continues to do so into 2021. Yeah, and probably continue to challenge us, us about resilience. I mean, just a footnote here, I don't know how, how much you and your li- uh, listeners have been thinking about covid specifically in the last 24 hours, but two things that really jumped out of the recent news. One is that uh, a number of people, WHO, the head of Johnson & Johnson, are all saying, you know, we're looking at four, five, six, seven years of development of the virus and of the vaccine. So anyone who thinks that, oh, look, we'll look at the vaccine in March and everything will be fine, Sorry, probably not. Well, we've already seen that's not working out because there's new strains that the vaccine doesn't cover and there's, you know... Absolutely. ...within the first few months. Yeah. I mean, the other thing that was really interesting, I don't know if you saw this, but Jeremy Hunt, who used to be what we would call the Minister for Health, the Secretary for Health in the the Theresa May government, came out about two days ago and said, um, we did a lot of pandemic planning but we got it completely wrong. So a hypothetical planning. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, when they did this, um, the WHO uh, rated the UK as probably the second best prepared country in the world for a new pandemic. So what went wrong? Well, the answer was they imagined, they got into, he said, he used the word group think. Um, they imagined, partly because H1N1 bird flu was a, a possibility, they imagined that a pandemic would be influenza-related, and they did all their planning for an influenza-related pandemic. They didn't plan for something that would look like SARS or MERS, and so they were completely caught on the wrong foot. And in fact, the things they'd put into place didn't work terribly well 
for, for, for the COVID-19. And it's a really interesting example. You know, people were saying things like, oh, no one imagined a pandemic. Well, even those who did man, man, uh, imagine a pandemic didn't necessarily imagine the pandemic we got. I'm not blaming them. I'm not blaming them at all. Mm. I'm not saying they were stupid. It just shows how hard it is mm. to be foresightful you know mm. we are always on about oh, we'll have strategic planning and we'll plan the future and frankly most of us got no well, idea foresightful what, absolutely <laughs> yeah. no, most of us got no idea what's going to happen 48 hours from now really really you know and and we all rely and i think this is part of what we'll talk about more generally this morning we rely upon things that work continuing to work yeah, it's and likely then, to be normal in 24 hours, but absolutely. not guaranteed. Yeah. And, and if we go back to the, the genesis of this project, that's probably a good place to start because the genesis of this project has two, two strands, if you like, a long-term mm -hmm. strand and a spark. The long-term strand comes out of the work of a colleague of mine, someone I've known for many years, I have enormous respect for, called John Blackburn. John's first career was in the Air Force. He was a fast jet pilot and then a test pilot, ended up as deputy chief of Air Force. And if you know fast jet pilots, you know two things about them. One, they're really bright, and two, they like to do stuff. <laughs> they don't like to sit on their hands. After he left Air Force, John got involved in a number of things. And one of the things he started to ask about was fuel security. Because, and many of your listeners may have either seen him or heard him on television radio talking about this, because he discovered to his horror how little fuel security Australia has. You know, basically, the, the, the fuel in the truck that drives the food to Woolworths or Coles or Aldi, which you and I rely on, most of our people do, the fuel for that truck is at the moment on the high seas in a tanker somewhere because we've only got a couple of weeks of, of reserve. If those tankers stop coming, within three or four weeks, Australia starves. Not because we don't have food, because we don't have the trucks to get with the diesel to get the food to the supermarkets. Naturally enough, John was pretty concerned about this and started to raise the question and look into the question of supply chains. And when you look into the question of supply chains, as John did, you start to find how vulnerable we are, exactly to what we were saying a moment ago, Scotty, that we just assume it will keep on keeping on. The tankers will keep arriving, the trucks will keep driving, etc. If they don't, everything falls over very quickly. So that was the long-term story. And so for some years now, John's been working on these questions, advising politicians and so on. The spark, of course, was COVID mm. because suddenly COVID showed how vulnerable we were in many ways. And, and although it's a trivial example, your listeners will remember mm. the great toilet paper disaster. Mm -hmm. Imagine that the great toilet paper disaster, which seems sort of ludicrous and almost funny in a way imagine that wasn't the great toilet paper disaster imagine that was the great last loaf of bread disaster and you see how difficult this can rapidly become mm -hmm. and so the institute that john and his partner Anne bozitsky set up the iiera worked with global access partners to start asking the question about a national resilience strategy now obviously a strategy for national resilience is going to have a large array of projects um, and so all sorts of specialist teams have been set up and they've looked into various aspects, you know, to do with the environment, the politics, the economics, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Our team and what we'll talk about today, the seven of us got together. <clears throat> John initially approached uh, my, my partner, Pamela Kinnear and I to look at this question. And we went to various people we knew 
We brought on board people like Paul Atkins, who's a specialist in the commons and has written a, an important book. Robert Stiles out of ANU, who's got vast experience of doing these sorts of things, including in the Pacific area. Margaret Morton, who is a specialist in community resilience and disaster recovery. Um, from overseas, Mike Jackson, who's a, um, a specialist in systems analysis. And we also got some backup from Mark Crossweller, who some of your people will know mm -hmm. has been very active in the emergency management area in Australia. And we asked the question, what are the kind of social psychological aspects that are important here? Because um, there are t tangible aspects diesel fuel in trucks. Mm -hmm. um, there are structural aspects. What system do we have for putting these um, you know, things in place through the government and so on? But there's also social psychological aspects. And if we want to have a, a resilient society, it, what I'm going to say now is almost a cliche. But it stands to reason that the first thing you have is basically broad collaboration, cooperation. And we have seen, even since we drafted this report up, which I've sent to you, we have seen on January the 6th in the Capitol in the United States, the most spectacular example of a so-called democracy falling over, where literally we had armed insurrection. Um, we can't countenance a future like that. I mean, can, can you imagine um, groups, you know, bussing in from somewhere in West Australia or South Australia somewhere and trying to invade Parliament House with guns and, and ties and shouting, you know, uh, what would be the equivalent, you know, let, let's, um, we're not, not Scott Morrison. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, why not? Let's hang Scott Morrison because that's pretty well. I think we they'd were. go after Dutton first, actually. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, uh, you know, the, our question was, well, what are the conditions which will produce cooperation, collaboration? Mm -hmm. And again, the start point for mm -hmm. that is a little bit, you know, banal. It's trust. It's trust. If I trust you and you trust me, then we have a basis for cooperation. You know, the, fam the famous equation that they put in the research is trust lowers transaction costs. And I think I may have mentioned this before, but I'll go back to it again. If you do a course on contract law, the first thing a good contract law lecturer tells you is, we will study many contracts in this course. Everyone failed. Okay. Successful contracts never come to court, mm -hmm. and the vast majority of contracts are successful contracts. Mm -hmm. You and I do a deal, you know, Scotty offers to renovate my bathroom, mm -hmm. and we shake hands on a price, and so on and so on. Scotty renovates my bathroom, I say, well done, mate, and we're all happy. Mm -hmm. We don't end up in court. And the more trust there is, the easier it is to arrive at that contract, the easier it is to shake hands on that contract, and the more likely it is that as we go along, we will find... Uh, collaborative solutions to any minor problems. Turns out he can't get the tiles mm. that we but we agree on the replacement and blah, blah, blah. You, you know all that stuff. Mm -hmm. So trust is crucial and trust itself then doesn't just exist. It doesn't waft through the air like some kind of happy miasma. It arises under certain conditions and particularly I think the most important thing is do I feel I have a stake in this society and it gives me a reasonably fair go. Again, these sound banal, um, but if you're from Iowa um, and possibly from country Queensland, I'm not so sure, but if you're from Iowa and you see what you think is America going down the tubes, you don't feel you have a stake. You don't feel that America gives you a fair go. And you are prepared to listen to nonsense about stolen elections. You're prepared to turn up wearing camouflage gear and invade the Capitol. Um, and 
much this as... This is the rise of a populist <clears throat> leader. This is how we Absolutely. get Absolutely. Right? And, and, I mean, you know, whatever else you think about Trump, and I think many, many bad things about Trump, but the point about it is he's gifted at, at tapping into that. I'll be blunt here, in the same way that Hitler was, in the same way that Mussolini was, in some ways in the same way that Stalin was in the 1940s, knew how to tap into this enormous well of emotion that was out there and focus it in certain directions. Now, no leader can make those things happen through rhetoric alone. You've got to have the enormous well of emotion already there. Absolutely. But, you know, it's one thing to have thrown the petrol on the ground. It's another thing to throw the match. Gifted orators know how to throw the match. Okay. And when, right? And when. Yeah. And how to set fire to things. Um, so I think, I, and so that was our concern. Can we, how can we be sure that we can understand that? What can we do to help promote that? That was our agenda, if you like. And so we set out in this report, and happy to talk about all the various parts of it, but we set out to try to, to define resilience and ask what produces it. And if we go back to that thing that you quoted at the start, Zena, our definition, one part of it says, a resilient community or society will do so without harm to other communities or societies or the sustainability of the planet. Now, I don't know how much um, your listeners know about Genghis Khan. Genghis Khan was a brilliant leader in many ways and launched probably the largest empire the world has ever seen. In the long run, many of the things that Genghis Khan did were actually very positive. <laughs> but no one would describe him as doing it without harm to other communities. <laughs> um, so much as you might admire his military prowess and his vision, and I do actually admire both of those, you know, um, he, was, he was much more instrumental in history than most of the European people we talk about, you know, you know, lives Richard, you know, Richard the Lionheart for dead as a military leader mm -hmm. and so on. But then he uh, leaves a legacy of Kubla Khan, right? Absolutely. So you've got yeah. down the road. Absolutely. You have to be removed from the immediate impact, I think, to, to yeah. appreciate it. Yes. I mean, there's a famous argument, as you probably know, about the enclosure movement <laughs> in Britain in the... In the um, in the Stuart period. And yeah, Cotty, Scotty's favourite subject here. Yeah. Okay, the, the economists all say in the long run it was it was good. And Polanyi pointed out in the, for the most of the people involved, the long run never came. They just starved to death. Well, that's right. And it's changed the... Well, it's created a different class system in the cities. And from that, we've never recovered as a, as a working class. Absolutely. We've still got that structural bloody... Stuff going on Absolutely. in the way our culture runs and, yeah. and the way we have to work. And, and who still starves. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, we, we saw it in a smaller way here in Australia with the, uh, the way that the squatters grabbed the, you know, grabbed the land and created the squatocracy. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, this is nothing compared to the aristocratic. Oh, I don't think it was smaller for the mm -hmm. Aboriginal people. No, no, I'll give you <laughs> and, that. I, I, I could see that without argument. Yeah, but, you yeah. do. Um, yeah. Because we have a lot of international listeners, Stephen, if someone might yeah. pop in there. Um, so if you say squatter to someone in the... North America ah, yes. or UK, okay, yeah. they think, oh, it's somebody who's illegally occupying property, which is technically what they're doing. But in Australian terms, it's a slightly different meaning, right? Yes. I mean, essentially, once they'd created this notion of terra nullius and that no one owned the land, um, and thereby, as, as Scotty's immediately put his finger on, completely dispossessed the indigenous peoples of Australia, then the squatters were people who went out and just staked out large claims for big big chunks of, of the, the uh, of the countryside and promptly filled them with whatever they wanted to. And this to, would be like the settlers in the, in yeah. the prairies in the yeah. US. And Absolutely. Yeah. But 
again, there's a very important difference here. You know, the, mm. the, the, the tendency to open, not entirely in the United States, but mm. the tendency in the U.S. was very much to set up in the proper morally neutral sense of the term, a peasant society. That was, we, we, I took my small holding, I became self-sufficient. You see that really strongly in New England, but in the prairies as well. With Australia, right from day one, partly because we were semi-slavery with the, with the, uh, the, um, you know, the prisoners, we went for a much more take the very large estate model and export the goods overseas. Australia, Australia, a, a time of monopoly absolutely. when Australia was settled with the East India Company and all that absolutely. up and running very well. Absolutely. So it was more a monopoly model. Yeah, and it was a, it was it was very much a trade model right from day one. Pretty well, Australia was exporting stuff back to particularly the UK. You know, it, you know whether it was wheat or or most particularly wool. I mean, it was really wool was the big export. And, and in many ways, you know, Australia could not have existed in the way it did in the 1800s into the 1900s without this enormous system of global trade. Um, and in many cases, you know, they had all sorts of twists to do with the fact a lot of it was sail trade, so which way the winds went. But it was, you know, I think I may have mentioned this before, it was cheaper to bring wheat from Valparaiso in Chile to Sydney than it was to truck it down from Goulburn. <laughs> Think about that. <laughs> Think about the economies of scale and transport. So this is where, where sea transport was king, right? Absolutely, yeah. 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 And, you know, the, the, and this was very much in evidence long before we had a gold rush or anything like that. So, you know, that particular history is a very important one. And, it, and it's left us with a legacy. The legacy is not as, in some senses, I think, ingrained as it is in the United Kingdom, where still, you know, you've got all, you've literally got an aristocracy, um, and still they maintain, if not the class domination of the country, certainly the status domination. Oh, no, no, nice traps. You know. yes. all, they all go to public schools, join the guards. They still a significant amount of land. It was jolly nice, you know. And, you know, I mean, even as recently as the early 2000s, I did some work with the defence in, in, in the UK, and I was talking to one of the very senior defence people, and they pointed out that 90% of the senior officer corps of the British Army had been to one of those six private schools, Eton, Harrow, Rugby, Marlborough, Winchester and so on. So it's very, very strong. But we, we have that. We don't have it quite as strongly. We are a more egalitarian society, more egalitarian than, say, the UK. And I think one of the, the things at the core of our report is to say we've had an egalitarian streak. We need not to lose it. Now, we need to move away from that kind of blokey mateship mm -hmm. idea. But if you go back to the early 19, uh, 1900s, the Harvester decision, which basically mm -hmm. said a living wage. Now, all right, it was a living wage for a man and his wife, which mm -hmm. is very conventional. But the concept of a living wage for, for all Australians was central. We've had a very strong tax and transfer system in this country, which has is, which is really muted excessive inequality for most people. Just want to explain what that is? A tax and transfer system. Yes. Well, tax in itself is relatively obvious, although it's worth you know, pointing out the difference between a progressive and a regressive tax. So income tax tends to be progressive. Um, a person who earns very little pays very little tax, but we often have a sliding scale. So for this dollar, it's 21 cents. For that dollar, it's 32 cents in the dollar. For that cent, it's 48 cents in the dollar. And the idea is that the rich will pay more per capita or as a share, but of course, 
Yeah, we know it still, doesn't they, work. Yeah. They won't exactly starve to death. That's progressive taxation. <laughs> and we take the money from all of our taxes and then we provide <laughs> things to people. We might provide them in terms of, of actual money support. So, you know, unemployment benefit, you know, things like that, family benefits and so on. Mostly we provide them in terms of the services, the roads, the schools, the, the infrastructure hospitals, things, the infrastructure yeah. and stuff like that. Or we provide systems to, to boost and, and benefit particular things. So if we decide we want, um, you know, to have more children in a society, we can start to lean our benefits towards people who are having children and to some extent away from those who choose not to have children. On the other hand, if we think we're overpopulated, we could start to lean a little bit the other way. So we, we, we tax and we transfer. On the other hand, if you take something like um, the GST which I think is a mixed story. But the GST is essentially regressive because it's this percentage on every bottle of milk or whatever it might, perhaps not milk, but you get my point. Every, pretty well everything you buy for food and so on and everything else, you pay a certain percentage. And that hurts the less well-off more than it hurts the rich. On the other hand, at least companies do pay GST, which they tend not to do anything else. So there is some, you know, it's, I think it's a mixed story. But we've had a tax and transfer system. The Productivity Commission made this point a few years ago, which has ameliorated, very much ameliorated, the tendency for vast inequality. And that's been good. What we haven't done is to maintain a public discourse about taxation. I mentioned in this paper, I may have mentioned when we talked last year, in Denmark, Denmark's got what, what the Conservatives call a very high tax burden. Danes think taxation is good, and it's one of the two or three happiest countries in the world. They think we should pay taxes. Why? Well, because when I pay taxes... I fund the schools and the roads and the hospitals and so on and so forth. I fund a good society. It's very visually evident what your taxes are doing in Scandinavian countries. Yeah. I, I mean, was... I spent time in Sweden and I never heard a Swede say they were upset about paying high taxes. No. Whereas here we've had this thing and it's been particularly true since we were influenced by Thatcher and Reagan back in the, uh, in the late 70s, early 80s. All tax is bad. And there's hardly a, a bloody election where someone hasn't tried to win votes by saying, well, cut taxes, cut taxes, cut taxes, as if somehow... This was a universally good thing to do. And it's based upon the most naive model of taxation and the most naive model of, oh, I got more in my pay packet. Yes, you did. You got $20 more in your pay packet. And now you can pay out $45 on, on uh, you know, road tolls and fees for doctors and so on and so forth. It's, it's, wrong. it's actually economically stupid. And I guess the other side of the tax and transfer coin is the, the work and transfer <laughs> system where when we work, <laughs> uh, it's necessary in this economy in particular that we create X amount of, of, of wealth out of our work. <laughs> and we would not get employed if we kept all of that. No. So there's a certain amount, which they call productivity, I believe, which goes to the organiser of that work <laughs> and we get to keep the rest as pay. So. <laughs> That's, that's transferring. That's true. It tends to transfer up the scale pretty quickly too. It does. And, but the, the interesting thing about that, Scotty, which is, is that we look at it in terms of profitability, quite rightly as you put your mm. finger on. But what we don't ask is whether or not the activity itself benefits mm. society as opposed to an employer or an entrepreneur. And, and this comes out in two different ways, both of which are worth mentioning. One is, you know, we all rabbit on about how important education is, and yet you have a look at the pay for teachers compared to um, other people. You know, there are, there are 
I'll get a bit angry here, but there are these sort of rich young heroes of the universe who are down there speculating for merchant banks, right? <laughs> Doing, as far as I can tell, nothing productive for anything except their own bottom line. And they're earning 10, 15, 20 times what a teacher's earning. And yet we want that teacher to educate our kids to help our society. So we don't, we don't see a reward structure related to benefit. The second thing that goes is sort of linked to that, and we saw, we've seen it a lot with COVID, is that at the bottom end of this, people are having to work two and three jobs to make ends meet. Now, it's very easy to get angry and say, oh, this person's, you know, this person was here and they didn't report their quarantine obligation and they went there and they spread COVID. And we can all get, you know, very angry about COVID spreaders. Now, occasionally, some of them are just selfish prats. But from what I can see, most of the people who are doing that are doing that because they're under pressure. Mm. They need to be working, you know, this day job in the supermarket and then that evening job as a security guard to make ends meet. Mm. And a lot of the pressures that have put people under, under difficult situations and have contributed to um, COVID spreading seem to be related to this mm. issue about profitability. I mean, in the West... Very recently in the West, some of the security guards have been saying that the private employers who hire them to provide security to the quarantine hotels are saying, oh, we haven't got lots of money for all that PPE stuff, you know, that uh, personal protection equipment. You know, it's not a bottomless pit. And so they're, they're cutting corners. And then guess what? Mm. They get and spread COVID. So that the profitability to the to the employer of keeping these security guards on low wages and not protecting them properly comes back to bite you and me in terms of the spread of COVID. And then you've got a, a system like they have in North America with its you know very very low minimum wage. You know they're still on seven dollars something an hour oh, in most most states. So you ha you've got a standard normal of two to three jobs for. Yeah being able to support yourself. And then you've got other countries, you know, like in India, where they couldn't really have a lockdown because people would have, if they stayed home, they all would have starved. They So yeah. everybody's just out there doing their thing because like, well, we, we don't, we're not scared of dying of COVID because if we don't go to work, we're going to die of other things much more quickly. Yes. I mean, there's an interesting debate here. I hope this isn't going too far off, but it particularly started probably in the 1980s about the nature of risk. And a German theorist called Ulrich Beck made an interesting point where he said, in much of human history, risk has been associated with inequality in the sense that the poor carry the risks. Now, if you go, for example, to, the, to London, I'll give you, we talk about the West End and the East End. And everybody knows the West End is, you know, this is where the ritzy stuff happens and people turn up with bow ties and go to launches and expensive restaurants. And the East End is where the slums. There's a very simple reason why it's the West End and the East End. Was it to do with city gates? No. Yeah. It's the dominant wind. Uh, in, in Britain, the yeah. dominant wind blows from the west yeah. to the east. So if you live downwind, you get all the effluvia. Yeah. And if you want to live somewhere really nice, live uphill on the west side. Oh, that would be Hampstead. Right. <laughs> Highgate, <laughs> yeah. Ha, ha, yes. NW3 and NW6. That's right. Six, yeah. Go to Bristol, which is yeah. my, my PhD. It's the same up near the Clifton Suspension Bridge up yeah, the yeah. top of Bristol. It's beautiful. And the bridge, the fresh breeze blows in from the Bristol, <laughs> the, from the channel. I've forgotten the area up near Bristol. It's lovely. I've stayed there. It is just near the Clifton Bridge, and it's a very posh neighbourhood. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, it's lovely. So, yes, this is, this is all forming in the days <laughs> when, right. when the streets were open sewers. And so this went with poverty. Beck's point was 
in modern and postmodern societies, mm. there are risks which affect everyone and the, and the rich can't dodge them. So, for example, if you take climate change, which is probably mm. far and away bigger than COVID, in fact, probably implicated in the rise of COVID, um, if this place gets hot <laughs> and the bushfires burn... Actually, the people whose houses are most likely to go up are the ones who live in the leafy areas surrounded by lovely eucalyptus trees with a beautiful view of the beach because that's what burns. Mm -hmm. So actually risk becomes changed in a modern, in a modern context. COVID is a good example of this. Even though the wealthy uh, can stay home and do the lockdown, they're not protected. They're not protected. This little particle can get into your nose and into your thing and kill you irrespective of who you are. Okay. So risk has changed. And I think that's a really important dynamic to think about because when risk is general, we need general collaboration. We all need to be in this boat together. And for us all to be in this boat together, we need to make sure that everyone's got a stake. And if, if I've got a big stake and Scotty's got no stake, why should he give a rats about me? Well, we saw this, you know, we're talking, going back to that trust, community trust, right? Yeah. We saw this, you know, just after the bushfires, <clears throat> there was a lot of empathy and support and people, you know, trying to help the victims of the bushfires. But when COVID happened, the people we'd talked to who had gone through the worst of the bushfires on the South Coast told us that all their support dried up virtually overnight. Everyone started to get concerned about their stake. Okay. You know, okay, I can't give my flat of water away now because I might need it because we'll be in lockdown for COVID. Right. So there was this shift from, you know, this sort of sense of empathy and trust and support again to that fearfulness and belief that I can't give my resources away because I won't survive you know there was yeah it, literally I think one bushfire victim told us it was the difference between 24 hours of getting all of these donations to help them through they had no drinking water and these flats of water were coming down with handwritten messages on the bottles wishing them you know all the best for their recovery and then 24 hours later there's no water isn't coming. that interesting yeah. yeah and you know I think that's a really good example of the way in which you know what we're arguing for is a con is to try continually to buttress up those things that make people feel healthy and safe and collaborative mm -hmm. so that they want to reach out and, and cooperate with others mm -hmm. and they want to help anyone who at that moment in time is struggling but if we put everybody's um, life and everybody's safety mm -hmm. at risk there comes a point where it's you know devil take the hindmost mm -hmm. And once devil takes the hindmost, not only is that bad for the hindmost, but in this case, it's bad for all the rest of us as well because they infect the foremost. And so we get round into a vicious rather than a virtuous cycle. So that was really, I guess, our concern was to ask these questions about what is it that you can do in a given society at any moment in time? And if I put it very simply for Australia, what is it we need to do to be more like Scandinavia and less like America? Mm. Well, one of the things that you really came and emphasised fairly strongly was basically what you were just talking mm -hmm. about, Zena, is the, the cohesion. So the social cohesion, I suppose, could be thought of as that, mm. that wanting to help each other. So how do you create the social cohesion? Yeah, yeah. well, Homans is a famous sociologist who wrote a very simple principle, frequency of interaction leads to a growth of sentiment. If I don't know my neighbours, I have no ties to them. And, you know, I think I may have mentioned this to you before, but one of my favourite little trivial examples is that one of the things that most undermines everyday life is the 
remote garage opener. <laughs> yeah, really. You know, I used to live in Cook and we had neighbours both sides. We were very nice people. When I drove up to my house in Cook, there was a garage, but I had to stop the car and get out and physically open it. And I reckon uh, probably two days out of five, I would see my neighbour to the left or I would say, hey, mate, how are you going? You know, chat, 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 chat. When I lived in Gungarlin, we had remote garage openers. And as we drove down the last 50 metres of the street, I pressed the button, the garage door opened, I drove in and it shut behind me. And you got tinted windows on your car. And all I didn't that. actually, but the, <laughs> but, the, but, the, but the point's well made, Zina, yes, yes. And so I, I don't see my neighbours if under those circumstances. When I don't see my neighbours, I don't interact with them. When I don't interact with them, it's not that I hate them. It's just that I have no time to them you're not you're not forming connections i'm not forming connections interestingly on on the on the covid thing when we had that lockdown Mm. back in march april everybody even in canberra was taking it seriously because there were cases even in canberra well i say even in canberra (laughs) because as you know at the moment and and, yeah i know we're very fortunate our local our local listeners will know this Mm. here we do not have any community transmission in the act that we know about Mm. and Went, and our sewage is clear and um, our water is clear. I went down yeah. last night to a place in, in, in Coolman Court and had a, a drink with my wife and a friend of hers and the place was buzzing. No one was wearing a mask and probably no one needed to wear a mask. It would not have been true if we'd been in Melbourne at this moment probably. But during that period, um, I stayed home. Mm. Well, I work at home anyway. Um, and I rebuilt my front yard. I had more conversations because my front yard is just at the point where a lot of people walk past. I have more conversation with my neighbours in those six weeks than I've had in the previous nine years. And I think that would have been the same for many, many people. Oh, I think so. We, we do a, a, a dog walk through a certain part, you know, yep. that's where the dog can go off the lead. And yep. when COVID came, within, within the week, it was full of people. Yeah. Full of people. Yeah. It's like, yeah. All like these walking dogs through didn't a shopping know existed. mall. It was yeah, ridiculous. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And and so, you know, that and, and we built ties with people in our street that mm. we'd we'd maybe seen walk mm. past the window before, but we never stopped and talked to them and we didn't know anything about them. And you know, you, when you know things about people, you develop feelings. Now they they're not always positive, but usually they're positive, especially in neighbourhoods. You know, so I didn't end up hating any of my neighbours, but I did end up liking a lot of them quite more, you know, from neutrality to liking. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I think that's the point. So we need to ask those questions. And just up from us, by the way, there's a, a little science project that you guys may or may not know about in the Western Creek area. But I'll mention it because it's a, an exemplar. There's a tiny stand of old yellow box. It's a, it's a forest remnant. And one of the local people, Alice, who is into these things, worked out she could get a science grant to do something really valuable, which is you don't have an ecology just by having the trees. You have to have the understory of, a, of appropriate local bushes and grasses and plants. And she, got, she and her colleagues got going together, and they're rebuilding this area between Foles Street and Follingsby Street where they're recreating the native environment. This has been really positive. It's drawn people in. And this year when we did our annual, uh, we organised a little street party each year. Well, we, we kind of widened it. We didn't have a street party. We, we invited the people from the, the two or three streets around this area to draw people in together. And it was great. And people come and they talk. Oh, oh, you live at you it's live like, at that greenhouse. Like community you know? gardens do the same thing. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. All of these things. And I know, I know this sounds. Like, well, we don't want to get down to the like the trivial and the homespun. Um, and I understand that you know if you live in a high rise building in the centre of Sydney, you're probably not going to have a street party in the same way. But we have to start asking those questions. 
we have to ask what is it that we can do that will promote these sort of things and i think if you know if, if i just take briefly back to our report in part b of our report we basically came up with a number of principles and i might just go through them with you because it's only a few sentences but so we basically said if we're going to do this what are the changes we need and we basically outlined six and i'll take them your, your listeners through one we need to move away from a pure representative democracy, just the ballot box, to representative democracy complemented by participatory democracy. So we need more engagement. Secondly, we need to move away from the highly centralized distribution of resources to a more localized organization of resources. And, and I suppose in a way that's a, a, an important one we might want to come back to. Secondly, we want to move from government doing things to us to doing things with us and that's the stewardship piece you like to talk about absolutely Um, we need to move away from power and innovation top down to shared initiatives and engagement particularly bottom up i used to say when i was working with a couple of big organizations think of think of commitment to change as being like a liquid it can trickle down from the top Think of innovation as like a gas. It bubbles up. If people at the top innovate, the gas just blows away. Really, really. Like hot air. Like hot air. Surprising that. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe that's the truth of it, Scott. (laughs) We need to move from telling to asking, listening, and engaging. And we need to move from an abstract on just formal scientific knowledge as a dominant way of knowing, to blending this with local experience. And I think I mentioned last time, but I'll mention it again, this classic study from the Scottish Highlands after Chernobyl, where it turned out that when they combined the abstract knowledge of the scientists about particles and wind drift and all that sort of stuff with the local knowledge of which side of the hill it would land on and which side it wouldn't, and therefore where it was safe for the sheep to graze and not, when you blend these two, you end up with something really constructive. Talking to a guy yesterday, just briefly, he's involved in the production of a particular kind of new lithium-ion batteries. And they were talking, I was talking to him about their innovative work in Africa. And he told me this fascinating story. He said, you know, we were talking to these African people about how they could use the batteries, for example, for refrigerators. He said, it dawned on us in the conversation, they didn't actually want refrigerators. They wanted a refrigerator that would be there for the, the small community and the few things that they need could be kept in it but they didn't all want refrigerators so well what do you want so we want street lighting okay okay well our batteries can provide you with the kind of street lighting you need in your community oh that'd be great i know it's a very small example but listening to what people really need and want and engaging what can i do for you what do you need from me how can i help you how can you help me i mean again these sound banal when you say it oh it's obvious you're going to do all that but actually sack your marketing team and bring up a facilitation team (laughs) good lord yes what a great idea (laughs) well that's that's politics in a nutshell right that's you know yeah and and, experience. And, 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 and and Scott's absolutely right. I mean, you know, this thing about marketing, you know, I, I know it's easier to take the mech out of marketers mm. and I know that, you know, there are some very good people who do some very good things, but creating artificial wants. You know the story about how Gillette razors doubled their um, sales in the 1920s no, and 30s? No, do tell. 
they persuaded women it would be a good idea to shave their armpits. So that wasn't, um, I thought that was more of a rise out of, pardon my talking about, internet porn and that creating a, a different expectation of what a body should look that's like. The, that's that, that's a different part of shaving off yeah. the hair, but yes. Yeah. But just in general, that we, we went from, I think, as a woman, I'm going to speak, that particularly in Europe, Europe wasn't as fixated on shaving as North and America still isn't, was. still yeah. isn't. A friend of mine. Again, I hope these two stories aren't. Advertising. I hope these stories aren't too too sort of discursive. But I've never forgotten a friend of mine uh, uh, telling us. How, this is probably going back thirty or forty years now. But she'd been backpacking round um, Europe, and she was in a, uh, a, a shared bathroom at a large campsite in Spain, and um, she was the only person there who was shaving her armpits. And then this American girl came up to her, lifted up her arm, showed her bare arm, and said, "I'm from America. Where are you from?" <laughs> <laughs> and they were the only, yeah, they were the only women there. But yes, but in the United States, mm. if you look at photographs, you know, sort of girly photographs mm. of of women before about 1920, girls didn't shave their armpits. Mm. But Gillette, on the idea that telling people that it was healthy and hygienic and feminine to shave their legs and shave their eyes, mm-hmm. and they doubled their sales. Yeah. I wonder who came well, up with that one. It's an insane like, thing to do. I mean, it's but but who sat down and decided that? Like, oh, I don't know. Who came up with that idea? Oh, some smart-ass in the marketing department. <laughs> well, some genius in the marketing department as far as Gillette are concerned. Um, I wonder if a genius ass is worse than a smart ass. Mm-hmm. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I mean, I know these things are sort of kind of spread widely over the landscape we're talking about. But you, need, it, we 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 so take it for granted. I, when I was teaching sociology years ago, I would raise this as an example because we were talking about the sociology of the body, and I used to say, you know, there'd be three hundred people in the class, probably 180 of them young women. I just say, okay, I'm not going to ask you whether you shave your armpits or not. All I'm going to ask you is for the next month, do the opposite. You could feel the sense of terror and outrage rising through the room. You know, you'd thought I'd said, eat, eat your children. It now, was, was so was shocking. Was this terror and outrage coming from both male and female students? The males were sitting there gobsmacked and the females were, were reacting to my <laughs> off-the-wall suggestion. Um, because, because there have been incidences. I think there's been campaigns, you know, of don't shave this month to raise money for something. And there's been a, for a lot of women who've said they've had a lot of negative feedback from their male partners. Um, once you've established, once yes, you believe that, that, that your 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 uh, sex partner should look mm-hmm. like an eight-year-old girl with every little bit shaved mm-hmm. off, then presumably, mm-hmm. if you allow it to grow back, it's considered shocking. Mm-hmm. I don't know. So you know, it's interesting to see that um, that response. That now you've created that expectation, that societal expectation, right? Mary Douglas wrote a wonderful book called *Purity and Danger*, and in it she defined dirt as matter out of place. So here, in my rose bed, this is rich soil. Mm. It's wonderful. When I put it on my shoes and put it on the carpet, it's dirt because it's matter out of place, and our reaction to dirt is moral. Okay, so again, forgive me, but your li- listeners may find this amusing. One of the things I used to do in my lectures was spit into a glass and then drink it. Well, some people needed to be revived. And, and I would say to them, what's wrong? It's just, it's, it's, it's unhygienic. No, it's not. Either way, I get saliva and water. I get just saliva and water, whatever. No, it's not unhygienic. It's disgusting. Mm. <laughs> 
<laughs> disgusting is a moral category, right? Hairy legs are, for some people, disgusting. It's a moral category. Hairy armpits are, for some people, disgusting. This is a moral category. It's not a, it's not a hygienic category. You know, is this going back to, obviously, basic hygiene being related to survival? You know, when we're talking about sort of maybe living in a more basic or primitive way, lack of access to running water, you know, that you're equating being dirty with being unhygienic, with being unhealthy, with potentially having a higher mortality rate? Probably not. No, there okay. is an argument in the literature that, you know, that all of our beliefs about dirt and cleanliness are somehow about hygiene, but mm -hmm. they're probably not. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm this, thinking of it, is it like maybe psychological too? You know, we've equated that. With be, it. Being pure mm -hmm. is, is a psychological thing. Mm -hmm. you, if, if, and this is not an anti-religious thing here, but, you know, um, you mm -hmm. can purify um, your drinking vessels, if you're a Hindu, by washing them in a solution of water and cow dung because cows are holy, mm -hmm. so that makes it pure doesn't make it hygienic but um so purity purity and hygiene have almost nothing to do with each other and when they do it's coincidental dirt and unhygienic are coincidental there are many things that are allegedly dirty um, which have no impact on hygiene um, and there are also, I mean, there's another another topic another day, but if you're interested mm -hmm. in the impact of excessive hygiene mm -hmm. on um, human health and mm -hmm. immune systems, this is a whole topic there too mm -hmm. for another day. Well, I yeah. think you can talk to mothers who were raising kids in sort of very, I would say, sort of back-to-nature type conditions, and then you've got another generation later on, or their third or fourth child, who's now being raised in incredibly hygienic environments, and they're saying that the immune systems of the, the two children allergies, yeah, yeah. quite different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The two are, <laughs> there, there are, I mean, it's complex, but there mm -hmm. are connections, yeah. Mm -hmm. So anyway, we, we've digressed a little. Yes, yes. Amusingly, we, amusingly so. <laughs> I, it's all relevant, Steve. You're really good at bringing everything back to where yeah. we started, so it's all relevant. Well, it, mm -hmm. it, it, it is because essentially it's about mm -hmm. what is what we think is normal, mm -hmm. right? And normality is, is, is socially constructed. What we're on about is what are the features that governments and others can do that will, gen if you like, lean your normality into healthier and more resilient ways or lean your normality into less healthy and less resilient ways. And I think to go right back to the very start of what we talked about today, one of John's insights was the notion of just-in-time management, which has been brilliant for producing cars in Toyota factories and stuff like that. I'm not being sarcastic, mm. genuinely is. But just-in-time is great for supply chains, for factories and stuff like that. It is not great for societies. We need to think not just in time, but just in case. Just in case will always produce a level of redundancy. From a purely economic point of view, it will reduce efficiency somewhat, but it will reduce efficiency in favor of effectiveness. You know, so and when you're talking about your food supply, you need effectiveness. You need effectiveness, yeah. not efficiency, mm -hmm. because efficiency and just in time is prone then to catastrophic collapse. Great for profit, but we all know you can't eat money. You can't eat money. And, and let's face it, even the rich will starve if the supply chains for food fall over. And, you know, 
oh, well, you know, they've all got freezers in their locked apartments. Yeah, that's okay. But when the supply chain for fuel uh, falls over, it's not very long before the trains can't bring the coal to the power stations, the mm-hmm. power stations can't sell out electricity, and everything in your freezer melts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. in, in the late 60s and early 70s, mm-hmm. you know, the slightly stoned hippies used to wander around going, oh, man, everything's connected to everything. Mm-hmm. Well, they were right. Mm-hmm. Everything <laughs> is connected to everything. And, it's, it's int- and I think what COVID has done is really bring home to us that um, fragility – Fragility in that sense is the, is the opposite of what we're trying to get something which is anti-fragile, which, which can bounce, transform, continue, be healthy, produce a society where Australians can live together well, not be wanting to kill each other like Republicans and Democrats are in the United States mm-hmm. at the moment. Or at various other points in history, any opposing groups? Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, it doesn't, ta- it doesn't take long before you decide the enemy needs to be exterminated. Mm-hmm. So and that's, sorry, go ahead, Scotty. The, there was a word that we had for a, a recognition of that connection of everything. Was it? Was that the cohesion one? Or? Well, I mean, I'd call it cohesion. I know co- there's a term, I can't well, remember. I mean, to me, cohesion is a description of the, of the state of affairs, and trust is the psychological component which, which links with it. So, you know, one's the more psychological, the feelings and the, and the, act, and the, and the way we guide our actions, the norms, Cohesion is a description of the way we actually integrate, and the two are in a kind of continual loop. Cohesion builds mm. trust, builds cohesion, builds mm-hmm. trust, you know. That's right, and I guess maybe the recognition of that might be <coughs> solidarity. Absolutely, mm. absolutely. Can you just explain that concept a bit? It's gone out of fashion. Well, the risk of going back to my sociology days, there, there are essentially two forms of so- social solidarity. One is the, so, you know, the solidarity of similarity. Um, this is very tribal. Um, I rely on you because you're my brother and you rely on me because I'm your brother and we both rely on Zena because she's our cousin. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have loyalty to our tribe and our kind. Um, and that tends to be true of more traditional societies, more tribal societies. It would have been true, let's say, for uh, indigenous Australians before, before the whites came. It would have been true for Maori cultures in New Zealand. It would have been true for many uh, villages in, in, in Europe in the you know, 10th, 11th, 12th, 13th, 14th century. The other kind of solidarity is, is kind of to do with interdependence. Um, you know, I'll take a very trivial but simple example. Um, your health is supported by my being a doctor and my well-being is supported by the fact that you and your mates take away the refuse to the refuse tip. So the, the refuse collector and the doctor and the teacher and, and the policeman and whatever are all interconnected. And if any one of those sectors falls over, you know, if the rubbish collectors all go on strike. As we saw not that long ago. As we saw that long ago. Well, you see it a couple of times in big cities in, yeah. in, in, in uh, Europe and North America mm-hmm. and suddenly the trash is 12 feet mm-hmm. high on the sidewalks you know so that kind of solidarity is is but it, that one's much more it's much less conscious isn't it it's much less conscious and it's much more subject to short-term um refusals like strikes mm. okay um so the idea of, of solidarity is one where the various parts of society for whatever the various people in the various parts link together in positive ways i'm not saying necessarily the most efficient but they link together in positive ways and they keep us keeping on and they keep us feeling that we're part of the enterprise you know how do i know that i am a canberran because of so and so so and so how do i know i'm an australian because of so and so so and so i suppose that it's also got um a third meaning in the solidarity 
of the union movement, which is more of a more to do with a nation. Uh, we are a nation of workers. We're a class of workers. So we stand together, and in the union's case, we fight the bosses. Yeah. Or, yeah, yeah, the unions are an interesting case because if you were a Marxist, um, and I used to teach Marxist social theory, um, if you're a Marxist, you believe that your position in relation to production gives your true interests. And from that position, the unions are unequivocally a good thing because they, they, they protect the interests of the workers and take them forward. I agree with that. I do think mm -hmm. that's true. On the other hand, uh, and I think this is where Marx falls over, um, what we do know is that economic interest is by no means the only thing that drives people. And there are all sorts of other non-rational considerations about language and tribal identity and national identity and local identity and so on, which cut across that. And I think the failure of, of, of the Marxist movements in the 20th century was that they took this idea of economic interest and said, that's it. That's your true interest. Comrade, if you don't understand that, you will need to be re-educated, perhaps in Siberia. Um, and I think that's that's the sort of limitation. So do I think mm -hmm. unions are a good thing? I most certainly mm -hmm. do. Do I think it's been a bad thing that the unions have weakened over the last 30 or 40 years? Yes, I do. Um, would I want to see the unions alone running society? No, I wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a very common thing on the on the, the traditional left to mm -hmm. focus only on the workplace, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, 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 you know... They've also been driven into that a bit mm -hmm. by... Huh. By some of the legislation which bans unions from thinking about anything except wages, hours and conditions. Absolutely. And I mean, if you want a good historical example from recent times, look what happened when Paul Keating wanted to liberate the economy, I think, to some extent rightly, and he and Hawke sat down and came up with the Accord. And the Accord was a very positive way of saying to the unions, we do want to make change, but we don't want to screw your members. And, and Hawke being such a union man too, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, I think, I think his capacity to bring groups together, whatever else you think about Bob Hawke, and I personally think mostly positive, but whatever else you think about Hawke, one of his great capacities was his ability to get people to sit down at a table and do all the things we're talking about in this report, to talk and cooperate and collaborate. And the Accord was a very good example of that. And the Accord brought... Economic change to Australia, I think, in, in, in as good a way as it could have been done. Thatcher was wrecking the UK. Reagan wasn't wrecking, but he was damaging the US. We well, had his poster girl up there to Absolutely. copy, right? And, and uh, Roger Douglas, you know, Roger Nomex over in New Zealand. New Zealand's been one of the best countries in the world for many years, and he nearly put it to the sword following this sort of Reagan-Thatcher stuff. He did, they didn't Neoliberal do, economics. Absolutely. They didn't do a remark, anything like as well as we did it in this country. It's one of the few occasions where, apart from the occasional wallaby victory, one of the few occasions where we've done better than New Zealand. Um, and, and it was because Hawke understood the need to collaborate and cooperate, and in this case, to bring the unions on board in a really positive way. I think that was really good. And George Monbiot talks about that as the... the what I mean is the uh, the rise of neoliberal economics, which is what we have now, um, 
as a, a change in story, a change in a very big social story from Keynesianism, which was Absolutely. more about building the uh, the social security system and, and this tax and transfer sort of thing, into neoliberal, which is the market is the only metric by which we shall rule ourselves. Absolutely, absolutely. And I do one of the interesting things I do. See, I mean, you, you're seeing it now is is the resurgence of Keynesian policies. You know, um, the, the, the huge thing they've got in front of Congress in the United States, um, the way we're operating here, a number of these things are essentially Keynesian. At the moment, I think what we're getting is Keynesian policies rather than Keynesian narratives. Mm. My hope is that the Keynesian policies are followed by the Keynesian <laughs> narratives <laughs> about what do we do to make a good society rather than what do we do to let the market run well, rampant. The interesting thing about what Monbiot's argument follows on with is that that was the only response that people had. There was no response from the left to this yeah. story of neoliberalism. There hasn't been a big story from our side. And maybe going, oh, Keynes, we could do some Keynesian stuff. But the the opposition to the Keynesians have found their way around Keynesianism. And it's based on economic growth, exponential growth on a finite well, the GDP planet. And, and there, yeah. are, there are some big problems with Keynesianism. So we need to come up with a new story. And that, I think leads us straight into the commons yes um, absolutely mm. yeah i mean to just for, to to fill your listeners in the notion of the commons goes back to originally this concept of the tragedy of the commons this is a, a very familiar notion the idea is literally and in 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 the case of say the, the united kingdom england you have commons common land and on the common land i can for example graze my geese and so can you um and the tragedy of the commons is argued to be that, you know, well, I'll graze as many of my geese as I can and maximise my profit. You graze as many of yours and as many pigs as you can and so on and so on. And the result is we destroy the commons and that's the end of that. Which, which fits market economics very it's well. It's market economics. Yeah. Eleanor Ostrom, and this is where Paul Atkins, who's been part of our team, has been really important because he's written some really good stuff around this. Eleanor Ostrom won a Nobel Prize for studying how people actually regulate the commons. And there's a lot of good stuff. I mean, I'm not an expert, but the, this section here that Paul's written uh, covers off the basics. Um, Basically, what Ostrom discovered was there were all sorts of ways in which communities, in fact, regulated their commons in terms of the good of the whole. You know, you didn't raise too many geese and, and Zena didn't let too many of her pigs out there to eat the acorns in the forest and so on and so forth. And between us, we managed that resource to the benefit of all rather than the selfish benefit of the person who wanted to greedily grab as much as possible. Yeah, I think they did some game theory tests on it and... When you rig the game so that the participants in the commons can't talk to each other and they have to compete, then you get the result that Garrett Harding came up with. But yeah. otherwise, if people are able to communicate and, and work together... So there's your cohesion piece. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And in fact, if you, in those very games, one of the things that happens is that people will start to punish the free riders. Yes. The, you know, yeah. the, the exploiters get punished because everyone recognises what harm they're doing. Yeah, and I really liked Paul's piece. It explained the, the eight principles of commoning that yeah. uh, Eleanor Ostrom came up with in a, yeah. a really nice way. It Absolutely. very clear and easy to understand. So I'd I mean, recommend anybody to go to that if they're wondering what the commons Absolutely. is. It's a great little intro. And, and if, if they're interested, I mean, Paul, as I say, Paul Atkins has, has written a book on this. We're uh, going to have Paul in, in good, a month or two. Because he, look, Paul is, is, is absolutely you know the person to listen to on this he's he, 
he's a local Canberran like yeah. all of us here. Uh, he's, but he is really uh, at the front edge of this in the world in many ways. And it's really worth exploring that with him. He's much more of the expert on this than I am. But, you know, you can see that this is an important question. Now, the other question that goes with that, and this is one that I don't have an answer to, I've been chewing. And this is the question of scale. Mm. Now, there was an interesting article, I can't remember who wrote it immediately, but it was in the Morning Herald about a month ago. And um, they were talking about the United States. The, um, the Economist has this thing called um, a democracy index. And the United States over the last few years has fallen from a democratic to what they call a flawed democracy, F-L-A-W-E-D. And the author of this article was arguing that it may be that very large-scale societies cannot function in the modern world as conventional democracies. Not because they shouldn't, but he was just saying the sheer question of scale. We are well inside in Australia with 25 million people, even scattered across this huge continent. We're well inside the boundaries of what's manageable. Maybe the 300 and whatever it is million in the United States is not. I don't know. They, they, they seem unable to manage their commons. I think a top-down model, no matter where mm -hmm. it is, is never going to be compatible with a real democracy. It needs what they... Or, so, you, or you might want to explain the principle so of subsidiarity. So they did a holarchy and a hierarchy sort of thing, or the holarchy, sure. which was... Like I said, it's that cohesiveness of mm. working for the common good with a hierarchy as the top-down model. Mm. <laughs> I'm going to pass on subsidiarity. Okay, so you, no, 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 you, you explain it because it's one of those things I remember it and I go, yes, that's good, and then I forget what it is again, <laughs> so you talk about it's it. It's a very simple one. It's just the concept that, um, that decisions should be made at the smallest possible scale. Mm -hmm. Yes, yep. yes, mm -hmm. uh, yes, yep. that's right. So a state, for instance, would be... In, divided into its counties and then into parishes. So you make as many decisions as you can at the parish. If there's a decision which affects the next parish, then you go up to the county level. If, again, if there's a decision that affects more people, you go up and up and up. So yeah. the, the federal government isn't doing very much, really. And they're not supposed to do very much. No, they're hang supposed around. to do the, yeah. hang around and do the big things the that really matter. The really big things, yeah. 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 I mean, like in the case of Australia. Well, actually, if you think about it constitutionally, what does the federal government directly control? Foreign affairs and defence. Hmm. And some big picture legal stuff. And probably taxing. Yeah, it collects yeah. taxes. It pays the, the Navy, Army and Air Force. It runs foreign affairs and trade and does some big picture. The rest of it, it doesn't do anything. What it does is it gives the money to. It's like the federal government doesn't run health. It gives money to New South Wales and Victoria and so on to run health. It doesn't run schools. It gives money to New South Wales, Victoria and et cetera. Et cetera. But then at the state government level, that's where it stops. Yeah. Our, our local governments are only there by the grace of the state parliament and they can just demolish them at any point. Absolutely. So, yeah. Absolutely. So, yes, yes, thank you for... And when you remind me, I remember that and think, yes, that's a really good concept and it, it is, in some senses, effectively at the core of what we're arguing Yeah, it was really put into force for about seven years in the Democratic Federation of Northern Syria, of all places, mm -hmm. during the massive war that we've had yeah. in the last seven years and it was only crushed at the end of 2020 there when... Donald Trump allowed Rajiv Erdogan to go in and, and basically and quote, them. sort them out. Unquote. Yes, well, that's right. And then, uh, yeah, so now the dictator Assad and who's good mates with Putin are now 
in control of that area. Other well-known Democrats. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's right. <laughs> so something I wanted, because you know, we, yeah. we, we love having you on here, Stephen, and we always end up running out of time. Yeah. So before we're five minutes from the end of the show, I yeah. just wanted you to touch on this really fabulous graph. I was having a look at your report last night, and there's a graph the that's the shape of an elephant, yeah. um, which is just sort of explaining about um, the change in income over last little while and how COVID has impacted that. So yeah. would you want to give us a little bit of background on that? And, and some I, of I the... will do that. And so to, <laughs> let's start by describing the elephant so that your, your um, listeners can imagine it. Imagine you have a picture of I'm an elephant. It up to the microphone. The elephant, <laughs> as, as, as it's drawn on your page, <laughs> has its tail on the left <laughs> and its trunk on the right. And of course, the elephant's a big creature you know it's got his back up there above its head and then the trunk goes down and the trunk touches the ground and then the end goes back up again that's the shape it's like a a, a cartoon elephant what the uh the authors of this work showed is that this graph they, they came up with the graph and then someone else imaginatively drew the elephant shape over it, it connect the dots sort of yeah it, it really describes a very important process of economic change over the last 20 or 30 years the line, which forms the outline of the elephant, tells you how much better off any particular group is in real terms over time. So down the back end where the elephant's bum is, you can see on the left that these were the poorest people in the world. How much did they gain in real terms over a period of time? And you can see the line's gone up to where the elephant's mm. bottom is. As we move right, what about the people who are sort of fairly poor but, but not desperate? Well, they've gone up a bit more. What about the people who were like middle-income earners in, say, Vietnam or China? Well, they've gone up in real terms quite a lot. They're the shoulder and the head of the elephant. When we go to the right, we now look at people who started off and are in the richer part of the world. The line starts to drop down and the trunk touches the ground three quarters of the way across the graph these are the middle income earners in america the uk australia and so on these people have actually stood still that's why the graph touches the mm. ground or gone a little mm. bit backwards they haven't actually gone backwards no, but they've yeah. stood still and if you stand still and other people move forward you might as well <laughs> It feels like you're going backwards. So if you adjust your wages over time and, and compare them to what things cost. Yeah, they're no better. And they basically may, the they same may as it was even be 70s, worse. This is seen as what may even be worse off. And just briefly, you know, the old idea of the American dream, which is a very nice way of thinking. <laughs> I'm better off than my, my dad and he's better off than his granddad. This has been true in America for, for decades. It's not true now. For Gen X and later they're not as well off as their parents so that's where the elephant's trunk touches the ground but the tip goes oh right up the rich have got richer massively so now there's a lot of people in that point where the elephant's trunk touches the ground and essentially they are trump voters brexit voters and other people like this who are bitterly resentful they look to the left there's all these people in Asian countries that they used to think of as poverty-stricken peasants who've nearly caught up with them. Or surpassed them in some cases. Or in some cases yeah. passed them. They look to the right and they see these people who used to have one Bentley and have now got ten. Mm. So they're better off and these people are catching up and I'm standing still. 
And that's why the elephant graph is such a nice graph for describing the problem because where the trunk touches the ground, where you've got a whole group of people who've stood still or gone backwards over the last 30 years, while around them the poorer have caught up and the richer have skated away, this is a deeply resentful group who suffer what we call relative deprivation. They feel and sometimes are worse off, worse off, worse off. <laughs> and, and you know, that's the reason why some of these, like the alt-right, for instance, can genuinely believe that white American males are... I've got it the worst of anybody. Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. That whole thing about, you know, the most discriminated group in the white man, for God's sake, grow up. Uh, but, that, but there are people who believe that. And for those people, they aren't the most discriminated mm. against, but they certainly feel the most hard done by. Mm. Yes. Yeah. The They've been graph. screwed. The way, th the way that globalization has gone, it's, it's benefited some and it's screwed others. And mm. the people it's screwed are the sort of white, working class white people in, in places like country Queensland or Iowa or Yorkshire. Mm. So also, you know, you've got a, a group of people that for few generations, um, you know, as working class and middle earners have had a lot of privilege. Yeah. Right? And so they definitely feel entitled to certain things. And now some of that entitlement's slipping away. Yeah. So even though they, whether the entitlement is deserved or justified or not becomes irrelevant if that person believes that they're entitled to it and it's no longer available. And, you know, what the, one of the di most difficult things about that, which is mm -hmm. you're absolutely right, stop and think about climate change. If we are serious mm -hmm. about getting towards zero emissions, mm -hmm. and let's face it, if we don't, mm -hmm. we're absolutely stuffed because there's mm -hmm. so much momentum in the system now. You saw what happened in India the other day when those glaciers gave way. Um, you know, glaciers are melting, the polar mm -hmm. ice caps are melting, sea levels rising. Mm -hmm. We have to change. And everyone thinks, putting it crudely, yes, absolutely. All those people who are richer than me should do less. And all those people who are poorer than me should catch up. We should all live like me. The trouble is if we all live like I live like today in Western Creek with two cars and a house and a garden and all that sort of stuff, we probably need about three planets for the uh, population we've got. That's right. Canberra would be the size of Sydney and mm. Sydney would be the size of Australia. And mm. Yeah. That sort of so, thing. So, yeah. you know, it, 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 and, and if you say to me, well, you know, the rich should give up their Lear jets to stop you know, emissions and global warming, I think that's a really good idea. But if you then say to me, well, you better walk to work, I'm not sure I'm that keen. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm making it simplistic, but there is a really important issue here that in, in transforming our economy and our society to be sensitive to the need for um, long-term climate security, we have to really think about how we change a lot. And yeah, of course, some of it's, ACT's a leader in terms of solar mm -hmm. electricity and so on, which is really good. So there's a lot of things we can do. We don't all have to suddenly start, you know, walking around, um, you know, and eating grubs off the lawn or something. Mm -hmm. But we do have to face the fact that this is a very, very difficult challenge. And actually getting the rich to give up their riches mm -hmm. is one of the biggest things, you know, because how unfair would it be mm -hmm. to have to pay more than 30 cents in the dollar on the $25 million I earned this year? Mm -hmm. Break your heart, wouldn't it? That's right. Well, after Roosevelt got in, it was 95 cents on the dollar and I, more in, in, I, US, in the US yeah. and in the UK. I remember in the UK when I was a kid, which is 100 years ago, of course, I could remember it was about, you know, it was about 90%, 95%, mm. yeah, 19 shillings yeah. in the pound kind of that's thing. That's right, and that's what paid for the institution of social security and our health system and all of these things. Yeah. Absolutely. Now, when you say that we have to change the way of life and because we're living too big, essentially, yeah. we're going to have to shrink that down. But that doesn't have to be a downer, does it? If you look at 
things like the Retro Suburbia book out by David Holmgren and the Permaculture Crew and, and uh, things like the Transition Towns movement are doing. This could actually be fantastic because having this social cohesion and having this trust in these communities is actually a whole lot of fun. It's so much better than going to work. And, and a little footnote that'll help you there. When we last did this, you know, you had those people who rang up from Victoria and asked for the for the um, the program. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm in touch with the, one of the people now, and they are down in Yay in Victoria. They're part of a movement called Sitterslow. Do you know Sitterslow? No, don't me know. either. C i t t a slow s-l-o-w mm-hmm. it's a, an international movement sort of originally started with slow food but it's about developing good communities mm-hmm. it's out of italy so yes there are lots of possibilities mm-hmm. yes there are lots of options we can do lots of stuff better to do that we have to be able to converse collaborate share i need to learn from you you need to learn from me we need to learn from the people who are just sat there listening to us in turner or gangalin or banks or wherever um we need to be sharing that and working steadily, finding bits that work, making a bit of progress there, not looking for grand solutions, not looking for governments to suddenly just go, oh, here's the answer, and not giving up and letting the whole thing go to, you know, go to rack and ruin either. Well, there's a lovely quote that was in your report by American General Gordon R. Sullivan, and it said that hope is not a method. Yes. Yes. So I think that if you want to extrapolate on that, what yeah. we're talking about is taking yeah. action. That's a big We have to take it. action. Yeah. And the thing is, it's often not um, glitzy or glamorous. Mm. You know, I mean, in that sense, I'm gaining a sand homesman, but it is mm. a little bit like gardening. If you want to have a nice garden, you mm. do spend quite a lot of time on your hands and knees mm. pulling out weeds and turning over bits mm. of soil and needing to wash your hands mm. afterwards. Mm. Um, you know, it's not about, you know, driving some huge piece of machinery through your garden and flattening or you do that, you end up with nothing. Well, I laughed because, you know, the um, British gardener Monty Don, right? So there was a piece that Gardening Australia put out on their social media saying, oh, this is, this is Monty Don's technique for taking care of weeds. And I got really excited and went, oh, look, a shortcut to dealing with weeds. And it was, no, you get down on your hands and your knees and you physically pull them out <laughs> rather than get some piece of equipment to do it for you. Well, on yeah. that topic, and I know you should never quote Don Burke for very obvious reasons, but he does have this wonderful thing that I learned from one of his books, you know, don't dig. Yep. Cover with newspaper and um, Mm -hmm. mulch, Mm -hmm. put worms in. That's good for the worms. It's good for the soil. Mm -hmm. It's good for you. It's like a win, win, win. Mm -hmm. The old Bill Mollison solution. Mulch the out of it. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I know that sounds, again, it's very sort of low level, but it's actually a very nice metaphor, I think, for what we need to do. What's the the mulch? Where are the worms? How is it that their tilling of the soil is good for you and me and the soil Mm -hmm. and them? And speaking of COVID, we've had um, quite a few gardening shows we've done in the last 12 months, and they have been our most popular with our listeners. Yeah. So the change there just in people's interest and focus, right? People really want to know those things, and they, they are, you know, they love gardening. Yeah, and I do anyway. So. Mm, and I guess the other thing about building community and community on or building, even building economics on a community scale, which is one of the things we're trying to build at CoCambra, um, is that if we keep going on this trajectory that we are with climate, we're heading for a four to five degrees in heating, which means that we're not going to have those upper levels. Those upper levels are going to collapse. 
Because when the food system goes, when the electricity system goes, when all the fossil fuel systems go, due to all these various national disasters and all of the full-on things that are happening, we're going to be left on our own in any case. So it's really good to practice doing that while we've got the resources to get good at it. And here's my question. How are we going to raise enough money to put a seawall from North Head to South Head in Sydney Harbour to protect the foreshore of Sydney from the five-metre level rise that we're going to be getting in the next few years at that rate. Because <laughs> that's what will be people oh, my beachfront property's going to be... Well, you know, actually, much of historic Sydney will go underwater within a century yeah. unless we build a harbour wall from the North Head to the South Head. I mean, this is not a serious suggestion on my part, you understand. I'm being satirical <laughs> before anybody thinks I really believe in that. But, yeah, these and, and that's another example of this risk thing that Beck talked about. Mm-hmm. Who owns the beachfront properties, not the poor? Mm. Who will suffer most by a significant sea level rise? Not the poor. Mm. Okay. This is one of those instances where the global risk comes back to hitch the rich more than Mm -hmm. the poor. But that would only be, of course, in, in certain demographics where you've got, you know, low-lying areas in Bangladesh where there's oh, poor villages yes. and they're all going to be underwater yes. and they're not going to be able to farm. Well, and so they're all, yeah. they're already yeah. experiencing yeah. that as we speak. Yeah. Yeah. You know, not to mention the fact that half of India is going to die of dehydration once the glaciers have mm-hmm. all mounted. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are really, really huge mm-hmm. problems that are all, almost inconceivably mm-hmm. large. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then on top of that, of course, you've got billions potentially of climate refugees wandering the planet trying to eat yeah yeah how would you like to be how would you like to be a a navy co whose job it was to intercept refugee boats as they start to increase in numbers Mm. all of whom have got covid on board i wouldn't want to do that job i mean I'm, i'm very fond of the royal australian navy i've worked with them a lot and i've got a lot of time for their people um, so I'm not making this as an idle suggestion. Mm-hmm. This this is not far down the track the way things are going. Mm-hmm. You know, we won't have a, cl- a cure for COVID. We will have refugee boats. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't want to have to do that incredibly morally challenging task. Because mm-hmm. um, I guess the trouble with the, being either a policeman or the services is that you wind up having to do what a politician says. Mm-hmm. And, and the other thing, just as a footnote here, I mean, I think... We often think about climate change producing incremental change, like the sea level goes up half a centimetre and then another half a centimetre. Mm. I don't know whether your listeners know this, but it also produces at times enormous catastrophes. So, for example, take the English Channel, the bit that, that keeps Britain away from the rest of Europe. That took about three weeks to create. There was... Um, a low-lying marshy area between what we now think of as in you know, a Kent and so on, and the Netherlands, but it was that you could walk you could walk from England to to Netherlands and France. Yeah, you could walk from the mainland to yeah. Tasmania. Yeah, yeah. And then one day, a dam burst—a huge glacial dam burst at the end of the ice age. Squillions and squillions of kilo, uh, cubic kilometres of water roared out, and it carved out the English Channel in three weeks. Really? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And we saw that in a tiny way in the Himalayas the other day. You can see how catastrophic changes suddenly. But the bushfires last year were catastrophic. They're now, because of COVID, they're kind of almost out of sight. But they were catastrophic and we will get them again. 
And now we've got such densely populated areas, right? When we're looking at history, we're looking at these events, you know, when there's either, you know, very basic small population groups or no human population groups in the area, you know, it's whether we look at the impact on the dinosaurs, you know, yeah. these little things happen that yeah. transform the direction of the planet. Yeah. Mm. So we're just about out of time again, Stephen. Um, can I get you in about one minute to add anything else that you'd like that we didn't get to touch on today or if you'd like to leave our listeners with any one thought? Well, simply to say that we will be publishing these reports and people are welcome to have copies of them so they can mm. look at details of what we've of what we've argued because, you know, we've gone over the big picture stuff here in some considerable depth and we've digressed quite a bit. But if people are interested in looking at the details, get in touch with us or whatever, you know, through Kinford. They can have copies of this report. We're very keen for people to look at it, comment on it, tell us that they think it's got it wrong, etc. Mm, okay, wonderful. Mm. Do we have your permission to publish that elephant graph on our um, page? Is that Absolutely. Right? Okay. It's in the public domain and yeah, people would it's one of the most it's one of the most communicative grounds I think you'll mm. ever see. I saw because people who couldn't visualize it from yeah, our description, absolutely. they'll be able to go yeah. go to our page and see it. And where can they get in touch with you? Um, probably the best is through our website, kinfordconsulting.com. Okay, wonderful. Yeah. And we can pop a link up to that on our page as well. That would, be, right. that would yeah. be great. I've got to put in a word for the report. <laughs> it was very understandable, mostly. It was um, uh, really good to get this stuff into the, into the mainstream. Good. Well, that's, that's <laughs> yeah. exactly what we were yeah, trying very, to do. Yeah, very right. readable. Yeah. Thank you to Stephen Mugford from Kinford Consulting for joining us this Thank morning. Thank you for having it's me. It's always a pleasure to have you back. You have been listening to an episode of A Line in the Sound, the podcast made by Co-ops, Commons and Communities Canberra, Co-Canberra for short, the New Economy Network of Australia, or NINA, and Radio Behind the Lines from Community Radio 2XX 98.3 FM in Canberra, Australia. Co-Canberra is working towards a cooperative commonwealth. Our work builds strong communities, extensive commons, and a network of climate cooperatives. The New Economy Network of Australia is a network of individuals and organisations working to transform Australia's economic system so that achieving ecological health and social justice are the foundational principles and the primary objectives of the economic system. Behind the Lines has been running for well over 30 years on Canberra's oldest community radio station, 2XX. We do extended interviews with anyone who's trying to make the world a better place. All three are volunteer-run, so if you like what you heard on this episode, join us and become the media. To join up with the New Economy Network of Australia, sign up at neweconomy.org.au. To help out with Behind the Lines, or to help our editing team finish off a mountain of good Australian New Economy info, which includes editing training, contact us at behindthelines98.3 at gmail.com and see 2XXFM.org.au where you can subscribe, donate and volunteer to Australia's only alternative voice, Community Radio. If you're not in Canberra, there's definitely one near you. To help out with CoCanberra, contact us at info at cocanberra.org.au That's C-O-C-A-N-B-E-R-R-A.org.au or come along to our monthly meetups, which we share with Nina Canberra Regional Hub, where we explore any and all aspects of the new economy. Find out what we're up to at cocanberra.org.au. And finally, if you want to help fund me, Scotty, to go full-time with this and lots of other related work, look up LiberaPay, L-I-B-E-R-A-P-A-Y, and search for Community Supported Scotty. From there, you can find out about all my other projects and donate to help create a new appropriate economy. Thanks.